Bible gives us very little reason to assume that faithful Christian teaching will be well received by an unbelieving world. Indeed, the, the message of the cross is, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, an offense to those who have not been taught by the Holy Spirit to receive the truth. But it's one thing for unbelievers to reject truth because they are opposed to truth itself. It's quite another when unfounded Christian fervor adds to the reasons that people have for scoffing. One of the cardinal doctrines of Christianity that has been the cause of much derision over the centuries by unbelievers has been Christ's clear teaching that He is coming back one day to judge the living and the dead. Now, to be sure, many have rejected that because they are just resistant to the truth. Unfortunately, far too many Christians have added fuel to the fire with unfounded and unfulfilled predictions about Christ's second coming. As early as 500 AD, Hippolytus of Rome, Sextus, Julius, Africanus, and Irenaeus of Smyrna predicted that Jesus would return in 500 AD. didn't happen. Beatus of Libana predicted that Christ would return on the 6th of April, 793. That didn't happen. Sylvester II predicted that Christ would return on the 1st of January, 1000. That didn't happen. Others predicted the second coming in 1260, 1370, 1504, 1524, 1533, 1673, 1694, 1700, 1757, 1770, and somewhere between 1793 and 1795. None of those happened. Of course, in the 1800s, with the rise of dispensational theology, uh, predictions of Christ's coming went to a new level. And between the 1800 and 2000, 24 failed predictions of Christ's return were made public. And since, um, since 2000, at least another 13. And there are on record... As, um, as, as I was just doing some homework this week, at least four further predictions of Christ coming somewhere between 2024 and 2020, 2057. And so with so many failed predictions, is it little wonder that the world looks by and scoffs at this thought of Jesus coming back again. Again, many no doubt because they are just resistant to the truth. But it hasn't helped that Christians continue making these unfounded, unfulfilled predictions about Christ's coming. But the second coming is not the only object of such derision. In the first century, Jesus promised that within that generation, he would come back and he would come in judgment on Jerusalem. He would destroy the temple. He would remove the sacrificial system. And many in that generation, many scoffers, many false teachers, rejected his teaching, rejected his prophecy, and uh, scoffed at it. Christ's loyal prophets and apostles continued to faithfully preach this coming judgment, but their teaching was met with strong derision. And it's that derision that forms the background to the writing of Second Peter. From the very beginning of the letter, Peter has been writing about the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. First Peter 1 verse 16, as, as Tommy explained to us. And as we've seen, this power and coming is a reference to Christ's prophecy that he would come in that generation, he would destroy the temple, he would remove the sacrificial system, and by doing so, he would bring down the curtain on the intense Jewish persecution that existed against Christians in the first century. Those persecuted Christians we saw in chapter 1 verse 19, they were living in a dark place. And the only glimmer of hope was this promise of Christ that he was coming, he would remove this persecution. And they needed to hold on to that, Peter says, until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your heart. Well, in chapter 2, 
Peter exposed the false teachers. We took two weeks to look at that. He exposed these false teachers and he plainly told of the end. We saw that Peter identifies these false teachers as the Judaizers, those that were trying to force Christians to return to the Judaistic system. Well, as he moves into chapter 3, he continues addressing this false teaching. But now he shifts his focus slightly to reassure his readers that despite its delay, Christ's coming in judgment against Jerusalem was going to happen. It was certain. As dark as it was when they were living, there would be a tomorrow. And there would be a day beyond tomorrow, a day after tomorrow, that would be bright, that would be filled with hope. And it didn't matter how much the false teachers protested against that. Peter's readers needed to be aware of the denial of the false teachers. They needed to understand the reason for the delay of Christ's coming. They needed to be persuaded of the certainty of His coming. And they needed to be taught how to live rightly in light of His coming. So this morning we're going to look at First Peter chapter, well, sorry, Second Peter chapter three, verses one to thirteen, and we're going to consider Peter's encouragement to his readers in terms of how they should live in light of the day after tomorrow, as we've titled this. So let's pray, and then we will begin looking at four things, four four things about this day after tomorrow in these thirteen verses. Father, we do ask that you would instruct us, that you would teach us, that you would help us to understand what um, Peter's burden was here, and understand how relevant it remains to us so many centuries after it was written. Encourage us in the gospel this morning, encourage us in the authority and the sufficiency of the Lord Jesus Christ, we ask in his name, amen. Well, this is a much debated text. As we'll go through this, you'll see that there's much cause for debate in this text, But whatever Peter is saying in in chapter 3, in these 13 verses, I want to say that we need to recognize that whatever he is saying, it must be consistent with what he has said in in the first two chapters. Peter has not said something in the first two chapters and said, okay, well, I'm done with that here. Now I'm changing my topic completely and I'm dealing with something that I haven't addressed at all. Peter is continuing to address this theme that he has addressed in the opening two chapters. And specifically, I believe he zooms in these verses here on the reality that he had highlighted in chapter 1, verse 16, that this prophecy, this prediction of Christ coming against Jerusalem was not a cleverly devised myth, that this was something that was going to happen. And so we see that it was going to happen, but despite the fact that it was going to happen, there were false teachers who were denying it. And that denial forms the first part of our study this morning in verses 1 to 7 is what I've titled the denial of the day after tomorrow. The denial of the day after tomorrow. So look with me at chapter 3 verse 1, 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 1. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord our Savior through your apostles Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. 
Peter references yeah, an earlier letter that he had written to them. It's been interesting looking at some of the, um, the commentators and the various interpretations that seem divided on whether the second letter is a reference to 1 Peter or whether Peter had possibly written another letter between 1 Peter and 2 Peter that we don't have. Um, it could be either. It doesn't really matter for our purposes this morning. For our purposes, we want to see that Peter is writing to remind them of something. That what he is teaching here is nothing new. This is not something that they hadn't heard before. He's reminding them of things that, that Jesus had taught. He's reminding them of, something, of some things that, that the apostles and the prophets in that first century had taught them. It was something that had been pressed home. And, and they needed to pay attention to it. Because they had received this teaching from the holy prophets and from the apostles in that first generation, they needed to believe it. You know, unlike today, apostles and prophets were still active in that early gen- in that early first century church. And as the stewards of God's truth, it was important for the early Christians to pay attention to the teaching of the prophets and the apostles, because that was God's truth. And Peter's saying that no matter how strongly the false teachers have protested, his readers needed to remember what he and his fellow apostles and prophets had taught. He needed to, they needed to hear what, these, what, the, what Christ's faithful apostles had taught and hold on to that because that was the very word of God. Let me just say that by way of application, we should recognize that while we don't have prophets and apostles active in our day, we do have the prophetic and apostolic teaching recorded in the scriptures. This is the teachings of the apostles and prophets. And we need to pay attention to scripture. Scripture is God's sufficient, authoritative word for His church today. And when Scripture speaks, we need to listen. We need to be reminded of our responsibility to submit to God's truth. But specifically, Peter wanted his readers to remember, he says, the predictions of the apostles and the prophets. It was necessary for them to remember these predictions because there were people that were attacking these predictions. He speaks of the, the scoffers who would come in the last days with scoffing, following their own desires. These scoffers are the same um, false teachers that were identified in chapter 2, the Judaizers who were, who were mocking the, the truth of the gospel and trying to force the Christians to go back to Judaistic teachings. He says they would come in the last days. The last days, at least as, at least as Peter uses it yeah, is not a reference to the last days of human history, which is still sometime in our future. He's talking about the last days of this old covenant era. That in a sense, when Christ, in a very real sense, when Christ died on the cross, he put an end to the effectiveness of the sacrificial system. But as long as the temple still stood, the sacrifices were continuing. And Peter's saying that that's coming to an end. Christ is going to come. He's going to destroy this. And when he destroys this temple, that will put an end to the sacrificial system. And you are living in the last days before that happens. The last times, it's getting very close now. The very last days before Christ is going to come, before Christ is going to put an end to that sacrificial system by destroying the temple. That's what Peter means, yeah, by the last days. Now, unlike those who through the centuries that I spoke about in our introduction, unlike those who have had cause because of failed predictions by Christians to deride the thought of Christ's second coming, these false teachers really had no reason to do this. The apostles weren't going around, like many in our day, setting dates. In fact, Jesus even said when he spoke about the destruction of Jerusalem that even he didn't know the day or the hour. He knew it was happening in that generation. The apostles knew that it was happening in that generation, but they weren't going around setting dates that were giving reasons for the scoffers to scoff. 
They had consistently proclaimed that it would happen in Christ's generation, which was still active when people wrote. And so these scoffers were not motivated by foolish failed predictions of the destruction of Jerusalem. Instead, they were motivated, Peter says, that scoffers, in verse 3, scoffers will come in the last days scoffing. Why? Because they're following their own sinful desires. That was the motivation behind their scoffing. Because they wanted to persist in their own sinful desires. Peter is saying here that if, if the false teachers admitted that Christ was coming as the judge, that would alter the way that they lived. But because they wanted to hold on to their own sinful desires, because they wanted to persist in the way that they were behaving, they were rejecting any prophecy of Christ's coming. They wanted to pursue their sinful desires, and they could only do that by denying the reality of judgment. And let me just say this, don't be surprised when unbelievers reject the concept of judgment. People today reject the concept of Christ coming as the judge because they want to persist in the way that they live. Because if you believe that Christ is coming back as your judge, that will change the way that you live. You will live in light of what he says, not what you want to do. But if you want to persist in your own sinful desires, you have to reject the thought of Christ's coming. The only way to persist in your sinful unbelief is to reject the notion of coming judgment. Well, Peter addresses the content of this false teaching when he says in verse 4, here's what these false teachers are saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Essentially, what Peter is saying is that these false teachers were rejecting the notion of Christ coming in judgment on the basis that God doesn't intervene in human history. You see, as they looked down the annals of human history, they couldn't find a single example of God stepping into human history to intervene in an unusual way. Now, at this point, some may say, but okay, then that doesn't really fit very well with the idea of, of Jewish false teachers, because Jewish, false, Jewish people, you know, they, they at least had the Old Testament. They could read the Old They knew that God was stepping into various times, stepping into human history. So how could these false teachers be Judaizers if these people were saying that God doesn't step into human history. But I want you to notice what, what Peter says. He says in verse 5, they deliberately overlook this fact. It's not that they were reading the Old Testament and not seeing God's intervention in human history. They were deliberately ignoring it. Why? Because they wanted to persist in their own sinful desires. That was the only way they could do that. If, if, if we want to persist in our own sinful desires, we have to reject the fact that God steps into human history in judgment. Otherwise, we're in trouble. They had no excuse. They were deliberately overlooking the facts. They knew better, but what they knew didn't align with their own sinful desire, and so they overlooked, they deliberately overlooked what was obvious so that they could persist in their sinful desires. Well, Peter counters their outlandish claim that God doesn't intervene in human history by offering just two examples from very, very early in the Old Testament of God doing exactly that. And he argues that if God, in those two instances, stepped into human history, we have no reason to think that he won't do so again. He first shows us in verse 5 that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. In other words, creation was an act of divine intervention. The creation didn't just happen as a result of natural causes. God is the one who created. There is a designer behind this. God stepped into history to create everything that we know, everything that we see. Peter argues, secondly, in verse 6, that by means of these, by means of the, the, the water 
um, and the word of God. So he says the earth was formed out of water, uh, formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And by the means of that water and the word of God, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perish. In other words, the flood is an example of God stepping into human history in an unusual way. That a global flood is not something that just happens. A global flood is evidence of God stepping into human history to judge. And if God divinely intervened in creation and in the flood, there's no reason to think that He won't do so again. So regardless of what the false teachers are saying, that we can't find a single example of God stepping into human history, Peter's saying they're deliberately overlooking you. Let me show you what the Scriptures say. And Peter says that God will do it again. Indeed, in verse 7, he says that by the same word, the same word that, that prophesied the destruction during Moses' uh, Noah's time, by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. Now, at this point, you may be wondering, what does any of this have to do with the destruction of Jerusalem? <laughs> Because we're talking about heavens and earth. And then you get to verse 10. And verse 10 says that the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done in them will be exposed. This seems like this is talking about some cosmic destruction at the end of history. Well, what does any of this have to do with the Jewish temple? To answer that question, I need to take a brief, mildly technical detour into a little little bit of Bible study before we come back to the text. And I want to argue that the terms heaven and earth and heavenly bodies, at least as Peter uses them in this passage, are not a reference to the physical cosmos as we know them, but they're a reference to theological realities. I do not believe that Peter is here describing a future destruction of our cosmos. And let me, there's lots of reasons for that. Let me just try to give you three reasons why I think that. And you're welcome to disagree with me, but I'll give you three reasons why I think this is the case. First of all, if destruction by fire in verse 7 is parallel to the destruction by water in verse 6, that would suggest something other than the destruction of the physical cosmos. Because in the flood, God didn't destroy the earth and recreate it. God killed the people that were on the earth, and no doubt the flood radically altered the shape of the earth. But by the time the flood was over, it was the same heavens, the same, it was the same physical stuff that was there before, that was there after. Secondly, um, the concepts of heaven and earth are frequently used in prophetic writings to describe spiritual rather than physical reality. Let me show you this, and I'll, we could go many places for this, but let me go to just one book in the Old Testament. We can stay in one book so you don't have to page all over the place. Okay? But if you want to turn with me to um, Isaiah chapter 51, let's just look at how prophetic language is, or how heaven, the language of heaven and earth is used in prophetic language. So Isaiah 51, verse 15. In verse 15, yeah, verse 15 and 16, God is describing His creation of Israel as His covenant people, His selection of Israel as His covenant people. And He says in verse 15, Isaiah 51, verse 15, I am the Lord your God who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is His name. And I have put my words in your mouth and covered you in the shadow of my hand, establishing the heavens and laying the foundation of the earth and saying to Zion, you are my people. You see what God's saying there? God's saying that when I established Israel as my chosen people, 
He's, he's, he's describing that in terms of establishing the heavens and laying the foundations of the earth. He's not saying that when he chose Israel as his people, he destroyed the physical planet and he recreated the physical planet again. He's using heavens and earth as a theological reality that this is what I was doing. When I was creating my people, I was creating a new heavens and a new earth by establishing Israel as my people. Similarly, when God describes judgments against nations, he does so in in terms of destroying the heavens and earth. So flip back a few pages, Isaiah 34. Isaiah 34, God is describing his judgment against nations. He says in verse 2, For the Lord is enraged against all the nations and furious against all their hosts. He has devoted them to destruction and has given them over for slaughter. So he's he's describing his anger and he's going to judge these nations. And how does he describe that in verse 4? All the host of heaven shall rot away and the sky shall roll up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall as the leaves from the vine, like leaves falling from the fig tree. You see what God's doing there? God is describing the judgments against nations, and he's using the language of of destroying the heavens and earth to describe this, this reality of judgment against nations. One more place in Isaiah, Isaiah 65. Isaiah 65, God is prophesying that there is coming a day when he's going to establish a new covenant. That this old covenant that he had established with Israel would fall away, and there would be a new covenant that he would establish with his people. And look what he says. Look how he describes that new covenant in Isaiah 65 verse 17. He says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. What he's saying there is that there is coming a time when he's going to create a new Jerusalem. He's going to create a new people through a new covenant. And he describes that in terms of creating a new heavens and a new earth. And so when we read of new heavens and new earth in prophetic language, often it's not talking about the physical cosmos. It's talking about spiritual, theological realities. And the third reason I would say that I don't think this is referring to the destruction of the physical cosmos is because in verse 10, when it says the day of the Lord will come like a thief and the heavens will pass away with the roar and the heavenly bodies will be burnt up and destroyed, burnt up and dissolved, that the Greek word behind that phrase heavenly bodies is used three other places in the New Testament. And in all three places, it is used to describe the building blocks of a religious system. It's never used to describe physical realities. Now, outside of the New Testament, the Greek word is used to describe stars and planets and that kind of stuff. But in the New Testament, it never is. Let me, let me give you the, um, the instances where this word is used. First of all, in Galatians chapter 4. Book of Galatians, the Judaizers are once again present. And the Judaizers are saying to the Galatians, you need to embrace the Jewish practices. You need to go back. You need to be circumcised. You need to start um, doing the sacrifices. You need to start observing the Jewish festivals and that kind of stuff. That's what you need to do. And Paul writes to them and Paul rebukes them for embracing another gospel by doing that. And he says in Galatians chapter 4, he says in the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Galatians 4 verse 3. And then he uses that phrase again in Galatians 4 verse 9. 
That phrase, elementary principles, the, the principles of Judaism. What Paul's saying is that before we embrace the fullness of the gospel, yes, the, 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 the Jewish system served a purpose. It pointed us to Christ. Those, those were elementary principles that pointed us to a greater reality to come. That's the same word that is translated heavenly bodies. In Colossians chapter 2, Paul is again warning the Colossians now that there were false teachers who were coming and trying to do the same thing. There were false teachers that were coming and saying, you need to observe the, the Jewish Sabbaths, you need to be circumcised, you need to do all of these things. And Paul writes in Colossians chapter 2 verses 8 and 20 of the elemental spirits of the world. That word elemental spirits is the same word that is translated heavenly bodies here. What he's saying is that you're, you're allowing yourself to be captured by these building blocks of the Jewish faith, which were never meant to be the fullness. They were meant to point you to the gospel, and now you're being tempted to reject the gospel and to go back to those basic building blocks. Don't do that. And then once the, the last one, in the author of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 12, rebukes the Jerusalem church um, because they were tempted to go back to the basic principles of the oracles of God. Again, same context here. They were being tempted to reject the gospel, to go back to, to the Jewish system. And Paul says those are basic principles. Those, those were things that, those were building blocks that were intended to point you to the gospel. You can't go back to those things. To do so is to reject the gospel. And so when Paul uses the term heavenly bodies here in verse 10 and verse, th- and verse 12, sorry, I don't think he's talking about the physical cosmos. He's talking about these basic building blocks of the Jewish system that are going to be burned, that are going to be destroyed by fire. He seems to be saying that the coming fire will destroy a religious system, not the physical cosmos. And that when that religious system is destroyed, when the, that, that, heaven, that heaven and earth and those heavenly bodies are burned up and destroyed, he says that the earth and the works that are done in them will be exposed. I think what he's saying there is that in a sense, as long as the temple was standing, there was a, there's a sense in which God worked under the old covenant with humanity through the temple. Remember, there was the veil that separated the holy place and the most holy place. And the high priest could come in there once a year. That was the way that God worked with people. But once the temple's destroyed, now suddenly the earth is exposed. Now suddenly God doesn't work through people through a sacrificial system anymore. He doesn't work with people through the temple. He works, through, he works with people through the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And that's made plain when the temple is removed, when the temple is gone. Now, all of that is quite technical, I know. But the point is that the scoffers that Peter was writing about were blatantly contradicting apostolic teaching that Jesus was going to come in judgment on Jerusalem and his temple. They were saying, where is the promise of his coming? I mean, it's been 40 years that the apostles are saying the same thing. For 40 years, they're going on with the same message that Jesus is coming, that the temple's going to be destroyed. And guess what? 40 years later, the temple's still standing as strong as when they started preaching this message 40 years ago. Christians, give up. This temple is going to stay here. Nothing's going to happen to the temple. If it hasn't happened in 40 years, don't think that it's going to happen now. It's time to give up on that dream. Well, Peter, in response, shows that while there had been a delay, there was a reason for the delay, and that that delay was not the same as denial. That brings us to the second point this morning, the delay of the day after tomorrow, in verses 8 to 9. Peter writes of the false teachers who were deliberately overlooking some facts, and he says to his readers, you do not overlook this one fact, beloved, 
that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The scoffers were deriding the reality of coming judgment. It's been nearly 40 years. Are you still holding on to this promise? How could you and your apostles possibly believe that this is still going to happen when it hasn't happened? I mean, 40 years is a lifetime. If you're 40 years old, you know you've lived a lifetime. Okay? How can you possibly still hold on to this hope? And Peter says, actually, 40 years is nothing to God. To God, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one. Peter's not making a, a philosophical argument here that God lives outside of time. He's just saying that God's not in a hurry. Okay? We are in a hurry. We want things to happen like yesterday. God is not in as much of a hurry as we. You see, our interpretation of slowness, our interpretation of God not stepping in immediately is either that He doesn't care or He can't do something about it. Because an omnipotent, omnibenevolent God would surely step in as soon as we wanted Him to relieve us of our suffering, right? Rabbi, Rabbi Harold Kushner died early this year. I think in April he died. Rabbi Kushner was not a Christian, a Jewish man whose son was born with a fatal disease. And he wrestled with this and wondered, how could, how could God allow this to happen? And in his mind, there were one or two possibilities. Either God was good enough to want to stop suffering, but not powerful enough to do so, or God was just not good enough to want to stop suffering. And so he wrestled with this, and he wrote a book called When Bad Things Happen to Good People. And ultimately, he concluded that God is good, but God, unfortunately, is just not powerful enough to stop the suffering in the world. That was his conclusion. Because he couldn't reconcile in his mind how God's frowning providence could, could happen to human beings. Let me just say, it, by the way, that that is not a struggle only for unbelievers. Okay? Believers sometimes struggle with the very same thing. I recently stumbled upon a podcast called Compelled. It tells remarkable stories of ordinary Christian people. And one of the remarkable things of these stories, it, it tells incredible stories of, of great affliction that God's people have gone through. And one of the things that you realize as you listen to these stories is that these were not Christians who go through things and just like, oh, well, that's just what happens. These are Christians who wrestle with God's providence. God, why did you allow this to happen? I don't understand. Hannah Overton was wrongfully convicted of murdering her four- or five-year-old son. She was sentenced to life in prison, spent 12 years in prison before she was proven innocent. Faithful Christian woman asking, how could God allow this to happen? Brian Birdwell was a man at the Pentagon in 9-11, and he was making his way down the passage, coming back from the bathroom, and the plane that crashed into the Pentagon landed meters away from him, dousing him in petrol, in jet fuel and flames. He was the only one in that part of the building to survive. Underwent dozens and dozens of surgeries, reconstructive surgeries, wanting it several times to die, asking God, how could you allow this to happen? Gracia Burnham and her husband were on holiday and were abducted, kidnapped by militant Muslims, kept prisoner for a year, praying, faith, praying to God for deliverance. The day that they were finally rescued, the rescuers accidentally shot and killed her husband on the day that they were rescued. And she's wrestling, God, how could you allow this to happen? It's not only non-Christians who wrestle with God's providence. 
Well, Peter, in response, doesn't offer a full theodicy. He doesn't, he doesn't give a full answer to all the questions that we have. But at least in this instance, he gives one reason, and one reason only for God's first century delay. And his reason is God is affording opportunity for repentance. That there are some of those persecuted, some of those Jewish persecutors that are viciously opposing you that God still intends to save. And if God must wait until the very end so that those people can be brought to salvation, God will do that because God is not in as much of a hurry as you are. God still had some beloved ones to save from among the Jewish persecutors and he was going to wait until the very end to see those people respond to the gospel. Now, we may never have all the answers to God's strange providences in our lives. But I think one thing we can take away from this is that God actually knows what He's doing, believe it or not. And even if we don't understand it, we can trust that what God is doing is good, and it's wise, and He has things under control. As has often been said, if we can't fathom God's ways, we can at least trust His heart. Well, this brings us to our third point here this morning in verse 10. The definiteness of the day after tomorrow. The definiteness of the day after tomorrow. Peter says in verse 10, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with the roar. That, that Jewish system will pass away. And the heavenly bodies, those, those building blocks of Judaism, will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Regardless of the scoffing of the false teachers, Peter says, this is going to happen. The come, Christ will come, and when He comes, the Jewish sacrificial system will collapse, and the church of Jesus Christ, free of restraint from Jewish persecution, will flourish. The gospel will go forth in true freedom without the incumbents of the Jewish sacrificial system. There is a tomorrow coming. There is a day after tomorrow coming, and it's a day filled with brightness and hope, not darkness. Can I just pause for a second here to reflect on how important it was that the sacrificial system needed to come to an end? The Levitical sacrificial system had been instituted by God, but it had been instituted by God for a specific purpose. Its intent was to remind people of the reality of their sin and their need for forgiveness. But the ongoing sacrifices pointed to the truth that sacrifice was necessary for sin, but those sacrifices were insufficient because you had to do them again and again and again and again. Those sacrifices were not sufficient to once and all deal for sin. Animal sacrifice could never fully atone for human sin. But then Jesus Christ came. And Jesus Christ took to himself the form of sinful flesh. Not that he ever sinned, but he took upon himself human flesh. He became a human being. And he went to the cross once for all to die in the place of those he had come to save. Though he never sinned, he died in the place for all who would one day believe on him so that he could give them eternal life. And his father accepted that once-for-all sacrifice, so that today he holds out the offer of forgiveness of eternal life to everyone who will believe in him. But the sacrificial system undermined that. The sacrificial system denied the efficacy of Christ's sacrifice by saying, you still need to do this. It doesn't matter that Jesus died. You still need to sacrifice these animals. The temple and its worship were an affront to God, and they stripped human beings of hope because you need to carry on doing this day after day. There's, there's no real hope. you just got to carry on coming back and doing the same thing. 
But Christ came to bring hope. By his sacrificial death and his victorious resurrection, he offers to all who will come to him in repentance and faith the promise of sins forgiven and life eternal. But the sacrificial system denied everything that Christ had done. And so it was necessary for the temple to be removed so that the gospel could be seen in its glorious fullness. So that there's no distractions with the sacrificial system. That's done away with. That's meaningless. That means nothing. Look to Christ. Look to what Christ has done. His once for all sacrifice is sufficient to deal with your sin and give you eternal life. The temple was a hindrance to gospel advance. And it needed to be removed for the gospel to go forth in power. And Peter assured his readers that regardless of what the false teachers are claiming, this is going to happen. God is so committed to the gospel, so committed to Jesus Christ, that he will not allow this temple to stand as an affront to the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's going to have it removed. And that was going to happen in their own lifetime. Well, finally this morning, as we begin to wrap up, and in fact, next week, as Steve brings an end to our time in Second Peter, Steve will really continue this theme. But in verses 11 to 13, we have what I've called the difference of the day after tomorrow. In other words, Paul, Paul, sorry, Peter writes here and he says, what difference does all of this make? You're talking here about, about heavens being destroyed and elements melting and all this stuff and this, this temple, that, temple that's going to be destroyed. Like, what difference does that actually make? Well, Peter, in these closing verses, he gives two differences that all of this makes in verses 11 to 13. And really, verses 14 to the end continue this theme. We see here that affirming the coming of Christ to destroy the temple would make these two differences. First of all, he says, as you wait, as you're waiting for this, understand that, that your wait is purposeful, first of all. He says in verse 11, Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming day of God? Peter says that, if you believe this message, you believe this message about the coming destruction, your response should not be to just circle the wagons and just wait for this to happen. Your response should be a changed life. If you really believe that Jesus is coming back as the judge, that should change the way that you live. You should pursue a life of godliness. You should pursue a life of holiness. You should pursue a life free of spot and blemish. And guess what? Chapter 1 verse 3, the good news is that God has given you everything you need in order to live a life of godliness. Peter is saying if they really believed that Christ was coming as judge, they would live lives of godliness and holiness. Believing Christ's claim to ultimate authority would change the way that they live their lives. And can I say that though we live on the other side of the fulfillment of these events, I'm persuaded, the principle remains true for us. That if we believe Christ's authority, if we believe that Christ is the ultimate judge, that will change the way that we live. It will spur us to godliness and holiness. If you really believe that Christ is your final judge, that He is going to hold you accountable for the way that you live, you will repent of mistreating your wife. You will repent of disrespecting your husband. You will repent of your sexual impurity. You will repent of your bitterness and your unforgiveness. You will repent of disregarding your parents. Because you will know that one day you will give an account for every idle word that you speak. 
And that thought will drive you to repent of your sin, to embrace holiness and godliness. You will understand that God has left you on this earth to be an example of holiness and godliness. And you will live a life that displays holiness and godliness to a watching world. It's a purposeful wait. Secondly, in verses 12 and 13, it was a promise-filled wait. Paul says in the second part of verse 12, Because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. Again, I think that's a reference to the destruction of the temple. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. What Peter is saying there is that this, this religious system, this heaven and earth is going to be moved out of the way. And when it's moved out of the way, when it's dissolved, when it's destroyed, we're going to enter into a, a new era, into the fullness of the new covenant. And the new covenant, the new heavens and new earth, this is a heavens and earth in which righteousness dwells. Because this is the heavens and earth in which the gospel is seen in its fullness. The righteousness of God is seen in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The end of the sacrificial system would not mean the end of God working among his people. In fact, quite the opposite. The end of the sacrificial system, as people saw the gospel in its fullness, it would mean that no longer would sin and evil rule the day. Because now the gospel would go forth in real power. There was hope in tomorrow. There was hope in the day after tomorrow. Again, I believe that we live post the fulfillment of Peter's prophecy, which means that we live in the new heavens and the new earth, as Peter describes here. By the way, that does not mean that there is not coming a day when God will physically restore, physically lift the curse and restore this, this physical cosmos to the way that he intended it to be. That will happen when Jesus Christ returns. You know, every time we talk about, every time we talk about the destruction of Jerusalem, people say, but are you then denying the second coming? No, we're not denying the second coming of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is coming back. And when he comes back, he will lift the curse and this earth will be restored to the way that God intended it to be. That's not what Peter is talking about. Yeah, I don't believe. Peter is talking about the fact that we're entering this new covenant era in which righteousness dwells. And what he's saying here is that if we believe that, there's no cause to be pessimistic about the future of the church or the spread of the gospel. You know, there's a great deal of talk today about what is the greatest threat to the gospel. And it's usually either CRT on the one hand, or, 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 or social justice or something, or it's Christian nationalism on the other hand. Okay? These are the greatest threats to the gospel today. And I just say, I appreciate that there are always challenges to gospel advance in every generation. But there is no threat to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. The reality is that Christ has won and there is no threat to the gospel. If the Jewish threat to the gospel in the first century proved ineffective... Be sure that every threat to the gospel in our time will ultimately prove ineffective. Christ will build his church. The gates of Hades will not prevail against it. The gospel will go forth to conquer in the new heavens and the new earth. The question is, do we believe that? Do we believe that Christ is on his throne? Do we believe that we're living in this new heavens and new earth where Christ intends to conquer? If we believe that the gospel is the power for salvation to everyone who believes... We will be bold in sharing the gospel. We will be bold in praying for the advance of the gospel. We will be bold in praying for our loved ones that we've been praying for for 20, 30, 40, 50 years because we believe that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. 
Do you believe that Christ intends to grow His church? Then pray for it. Then work for it. That is the promise of the day after tomorrow. And it makes every difference to how you live your life now. Believing this promise will ensure that you continue to hold on to godly Christian worldviews, even if they are increasingly unpopular. Because we believe that godless worldviews cannot be ultimately sustained. Because Christ will build His church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Righteousness will win the day. The question is, will we trust? Will we believe? Will we obey? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the promise that Jesus Christ will build his church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Help us to believe in the power of the gospel because we believe in the power of Jesus Christ. Help us as we believe that to work for it, Lord. And help us as we live in this world in which you've left us to pursue lives of godliness, to pursue lives of holiness, because we believe that we are ultimately under Christ's authority. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.